0: Welcome to the Mex Today podcast, produced by the Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Gold, Policy and Strategy. In today's podcast, Mex fellow, Patrick Signore, discusses organized crime in Mexico in his talk titled, Order and Peace, Amid Large-Scale Criminal Violence in Mexico.
1: Well thanks everyone for being here. I'm excited about sharing some of my work with all of you and getting a wide variety of perspectives, criticism, hopefully lots of actionable advice. So let me just start right away with the motivation for my dissertation work. These are homicide rates in Mexico from 1990 to 2018 and as most of you already know homicide rates have tripled nationwide from 2007 to 2018, as most of you also already know, this increase in, in homicides is mainly related to organized crime-related homicides. In this graph, bars are total homicides, and lines are various counts and estimates of homicides related to organized crime. I'm not sure if any of them are on the call yet, but they actually a lot of the data and the design for this graph borrows heavily from Justice in Mexico reports. So thank you for that, and sorry about not having the attribution on this slide. So there has been a lot of work on the onset of this criminal group violence. Why in Mexico? Why starting in 2008 and not earlier? And why in some places but not others? And these explanations revolve around, well, criminal organizational competition over illegal markets, shocks in supply and demand of specific markets, such as cocaine markets, heroin, etc., in the short, medium and long term, the breakdown of equilibrium and protection rackets, and especially in the shorter term, especially since the Caledon presidency, the unintended consequences of crackdowns and militarization. So there's a growing body of literature trying to explain the onset of criminal violence. What I found is that there is less work on the decline. And I'll, I'll show it to you and I'll argue that that it's important to study some of the success cases, places that have recovered, at least in some senses. So very quickly, how we got here. So Mexico in 2007. By 2006, cartels were already strong, armed, willing to wield their violence. There had already been some important turf wars, and were no longer managed by the state. And in 2007, there was a sharp policy shift. I'd like to reword that actually now, but well, Felipe Calderon entered the presidency, and at the end of 20, uh, 2006, he declared war against drug traffickers and he ramped up military deployments. He, uh, there were overhauls of police at various levels. There was increased fragmentation of cartels, increased disruption of existing agreements. And in general, uh, one could argue that there was broadly a sense of uncertainty about the future from the point of view of. Of narco bosses, both Calderon and Enrique Pena Nieto had these lists of their most wanted, like the 30 most wanted under Calderon and the 122 priority objectives under Enrique Pena Nieto, and the vast majority of all of them are now dead or in jail. So, so, if if they could start anticipating this, you can argue that there there started to be a lot of uncertainty about whether you were still going to be the boss next year and whether the people who you may have reached deals with are even going to be there anymore next year also. So one result is that there was a spike. One outcome was that there was a spike in violence that was concentrated. At, at first it was concentrated in some parts of Mexico, specifically, well, strategic regions for drug trafficking. So we can see those, some of those regions in the darker colors of this municipal map of Mexico. And the spike in violence, at least in the initial wave of violence, was particularly strong in the north, which is the green line. So a big spike of violence was especially in the north. And so here's my puzzle. After the Calderón presidency, conditions remained similar in many senses. So markets and geography were still the same. There was still uh we still had the, the huge demand for drugs next door the strategic territories for drug trafficking remained the same. Federal policy was largely stable in this sense. There remained this use of the military and federal forces, a targeting of drug trafficking organizations and of, with a strong focus on taking out the leaders. Political alternation continued at, at all levels of, of government and the fragmentation of drug cartels also continued. Yet since then, since that first wave of violence, there have been varying degrees of recovery. So I'm showing you here northern Mexico, and we can talk more about this map later, but what I'm showing you here, municipalities in blue are places that didn't experience any kind of sharp spike in violence. Places in orange and green all experienced sharp spikes in violence, but the ones in green have since recovered meaningfully in some way. And durable recovery is not everywhere or obvious. So you could say, well, it's a bounce. You always see it or you always don't see it in perhaps particularly strategic places or valuable places for drug trafficking. The little graph I'm showing you here are homicide rates in northern border cities. And you see a variety of outcomes. Same with seaports in northern states. Different outcomes here. The question driving the heart of my dissertation is: How did some cities recover durably? And here are a bunch of northern cities that that I argue have recovered meaningfully durably from these big turf wars that occurred uh, several years ago. And why didn't others? Here's another set of northern cities. In this presentation, I'm going to present a framework for how I'm thinking about criminal group conflict, where I am focusing on the termination of that conflict as well as the onset. And essentially what I'm asking is, is this simply the reversal of the conditions that led to the onset of violence? Or does the termination of these turf wars differ from the onset in some ways? And in my dissertation broadly in this presentation, I bring in the potential role of the state in terms of the composition and the actions of the state security apparatus in influencing how long turf wars last and how quickly they can be resolved and how long the new order, if you can call that, might last. I'm going to be mostly focusing on Mexico's north, but I can roughly control for, for certain factors, such as the strategic value, geography, in the north there is high capacity relative to the rest of the country there's high capacity of criminals and of the state and just to give you a preview of what my arguments are it's not just so a recovery does not only occur when one side wins and there is some kind of new hegemonic mafia regime i argue that the composition of the security apparatus matters and that the only durable recoveries you can we can only have durable recovery if there are stable expectations so let's get into the theory i like jim furon's paper on why some civil wars last much longer than others partly because of this productive tautology that he introduces and i'll just quote him for the sake of the of the recording civil wars last a long time when neither side can disarm the other causing a military stalemate they are relatively quick when conditions favor a decisive victory. Though this answer verges on tautology, it is a productive tautology in that it provokes some interesting theoretical and empirical questions. First, what exactly are the conditions that favor a military stalemate in a civil war, or conversely, a quick military victory, et cetera? So I will now follow in Jim Fearon's steps. And my question is, how does violent intercartel competition end? Well, it can end when there is no more competition, when there is only one criminal group or none at all. Or when competition remains, but the behavior changes. It is less violent. So that leads to the question, which conditions make each of those paths more likely? My other big question is, how does the recovery endure? Well, it endures when there is no new onset. That leads us back to the question, why do criminal groups fight in the first place? Here are my questions summarized. Which conditions help reduce competition Which conditions make DTO behavior less violent? And why do criminal groups fight in the first place? My starting point is uh, the framework I borrow heavily from the framework of Angelica Duran-Martinez, who proposed two dimensions, then three in her book, for understanding the frequency and the visibility of criminal violence in Latin American cities. The two dimensions are the criminal underworld and the state security apparatus. So in the existing theory in HERS and others, there is usually very strong association. So basically the explanation for there being more violence is that there's more competition. So when there are more organizations competing for criminal markets or operating in the same territory, there is just more violence. So that's just a one-to-one clear relationship. In terms of the security apparatus, Juan Martinez's argument is when the security apparatus is more cohesive, there is less visible violence. I'm going to, I'm just, I'm not going to talk about the visibility of violence, just, just its frequency. And the idea is the following. A cohesive security apparatus is more capable of implementing violence, reducing policies and it's less able to sustain. It's less likely to sustain competition. So, on that second point, the idea is uh, a law enforcement agency can provide, well, it can either be an enemy of a criminal group, but it can also provide lots of resources. If there is only one law enforcement agency or one very cohesive security apparatus made up of various agencies, one criminal group can buy them off, maybe. But multiple groups can't buy off a cohesive security apparatus. Whereas if there are two agencies that are working independently from each other, maybe they're rivals, then at least two different groups might be able to buy off to pay off different of different agencies and they provide such important resources that this can sustain uh, a turf war. I'm going to talk now about the ways in which I I go with this theory and the ways in which I depart along both dimensions. So, in terms of criminal competition, first of all, let me just make clear that in my theory, these strategic actors are these criminal groups, which I treat as unitary. So, the security apparatus, composition, actions, et cetera, those are factors that influence the environment within which my strategic actors operate. I call them. I've called them cartels and DTOs interchangeably already during this presentation. They're not cartels in the sense that they don't collude to raise prices. They're not only drug trafficking organizations, they they carry out lots of other organized crime. But I'm still just gonna use these words for simplicity. And well, as, as we know, as of 2006, they were already armed and willing to use their violence. Parenthesis, since I'm talking about terms and concepts. I've already mentioned that I'm using the terms cartels, DTOs, and criminal groups interchangeably. I want to just acknowledge and make clear that when I talk about violence and conflict, I'm referring, except if I say otherwise, I'm referring to homicide rates in the overall population, which is a very visible type of violence, but it's not the only form of violence. And well, there are other important types of violence that are invisible, just a quick note Lots of these forms of violence I have found, I wasn't sure, but so far I'm, now I'm, I think there's good evidence that lots of these forms of violence move together. So it's not the case, at least with the major variation in in terms of violence, it's not the case that when homicides are when visible homicides are falling disappearances are rising they usually they usually forced disappearances and homicides among other kinds of violence usually move together and finally when i talk about recovery in a place i do mean a return to relatively low homicide rates and i can later talk to you about what i what i call relatively low in some, in some senses, I think, I think of it as a return to some form of order. But I do not mean peace. So the end of turf wars and the, the decrease of homicide rates does not necessarily mean that, people, that there is the rule of law or that people feel safe or that they're not being uh, coerced or threatened. Back to criminal competition, then. So these actors have the following incentives, uh, crucial incentives. So DTOs want the greatest possible market share. And there's a bonus for having monopoly of a, over criminal markets in a territory. I also talk intercha- refer interchangeably to control of a market and control of a territory. And there I can, I'm referring to different things, which can be having the rights to pay off the local police or the local politicians being able to control key people or behavior relevant to the criminal markets you care about. In some cases, it's literally holding territory. So they are the authority in a certain place. They control who goes in and out. From the point of view of a group that's already established in a territory, if there is any additional rival, there are higher chances of conflict. But I will now argue that when there are many rivals, the effect on violence is ambiguous. So competition, when I talk about competition, I mean the presence of multiple independent groups in one place and with an interest in the same criminal markets. And I don't necessarily mean violently. So I've been trying to to step away from talking about competition because it's so often associated with violence and talking about market structure. So I'm, I'm a uh, monopolistic market structure, oligopolistic... Uh, competitive market structure, et cetera. And well, there are many examples of nonviolent arrangements everywhere in the world and and in Mexico.
0: Uh, I don't
1: think I have to convince you that it's possible. And my argument is that after a certain threshold of market fragmentation, violence can decline. And the idea is if what you care about is having monopoly over a territory, if that's the, if that's a big bonus and you only have one rival, you could go to war against that rival and that might leave you weakened, but now you have a monopoly. So there's a big prize at the end. If there are five or six groups in a territory, if you take out one rival, you don't have a monopoly. You still have a bunch of rivals left and maybe you're still weak. However, there are more chances to, to fight more, more opportunities for uh, miscommunication, misunderstandings and disputes. The effect of market fragmentation, I don't think, is necessarily monotonic. I have some evidence that, in fact, after a certain threshold, violence actually begins to fall. And the key points in terms of the criminal underworld are that, true, any competition makes violence more likely. But a lot of competition is ambiguous. And that's important for my study of the recovery of certain places after turf wars, because. What I argue and what I have observed in some places is that recovery from large scale violence can occur even when competition remains high. So when multiple groups are still sharing a territory. Here's a little bit of taste of this evidence. So this is the number of criminal groups. the, the, The bars, the purple bars are the number of criminal groups in the metropolitan area of Monterrey. The dark purple means groups that have some kind of major presence in the city. And so we can see that there was a, a turf war began in Monterrey. And at the same time, the number of criminal groups with major presence increased. So we do see that association there and in many other places. However, violence eventually fell, and there was a fairly strong recovery in Monterrey, even as competition in Monterrey remained. Sometimes it was slightly lower. Sometimes it was higher than before. But homicide rates remained well below their peak levels. So you can, you can say, well, that's at the metropolitan level, but maybe at the municipal level, there was monopolistic control at the municipal level. So here is the city of Monterrey again, and the number of criminal groups with some kind of significant presence at the municipal level. This is a cartogram of the city, and I, that distorts the, the shape of the municipalities partly, but not all the way by population so that big, empty municipalities don't drown out the small, dense ones. So at the peak of the turf war in 2011, most municipalities were medium orange or dark orange, which means that there were at least two criminal groups present in each of those municipalities. In 2015, when violence was at its lowest recent point, there was still competition in at least four of these municipalities, including Monterrey, the big one, the capital. And in 2018, competition seems to have spread out and increased across the city. Homicide rates did also increase, but they're still way below the peak of the turf war. Here's a similar idea with other northern cities, and yet again, the same thing, but now at the state level for the nine northern states of Mexico. We can come back to these later. For now, please take my word for it. Recoveries can occur without criminal consolidation. So what is the state's role in this? The security apparatus, recall that it's how I refer to the authorities and enforcement forces and and their enforcement groups, agencies with jurisdiction over a territory. In Mexico, the parts of Mexico security apparatus, uh, we have what well, we have. It's a federal system with three levels, with the president who is in charge of the federal police, federal prosecutors and investigators, and the military, which has two uh, separate branches, the army and the navy. Then there are thirty-two states, each with a governor and each with the state police force, and with the state prosecutors and investigators. I should note that actually now these the prosecutors and investigators are are autonomous agencies at the federal and state level. And then there are over 2,500 municipalities, each with a mayor and each also potentially with a municipal police force. So there are thousands and thousands of of, uh, security agencies. Now, what do I mean when I'm talking about a city or municipality what do I mean by the security apparatus of that city or municipality well that can mean the presence in this in this imaginary municipio de Santa Maria del Cerrito there can be they can have a municipal police there can also be the presence of state police or investigators there can also be soldiers or, or marines and then there could be uh, federal forces this is actually a, a way of seeing the vertical composition of a security apparatus. If we look at at the metropolitan level, we can actually have you know multiple municipal forces in in one city. Now, what I want to do is open up uh, open a little bit more uh, up what what people have referred to to cohesiveness of the security apparatus because, when previous work has talked about the cohesive security apparatus i have found that in fact they mean different things at different points of time sometimes they mean its capacity or sometimes that's the important mechanism sometimes they actually mean the coordination which we can think of as actual cohesiveness and sometimes they refer to the stability over time of the security apparatus and i'm interested i'm distinguishing between them and this is sort of my contribution a little contribution to the theory because first of all it's not only it's they actually mean different things but also i think that each of these attributes can have can influence dynamics in the criminal underworld in different ways so what i'm going to do is talk about each of these things and how they can influence the criminal underworld in two ways first directly in the level of competition of the criminal in the world. So whether, they, whether the security apparatus might make criminal markets more or less competitive. And second, how they might influence the incentives to fight of the groups holding, holding constant the level of competition. The security apparatus capacity is just, I define it as the ability to crack down on criminal groups. And that can refer just to brute force such as well, number of personnel, the training equipment, firepower, but also the ability to carry, to gather intelligence, insulation from leaks or, or threats uh, from criminal groups. One example is the overhaul of the state police in Nuevo León when they created Fuerza Civil. They not only reformed the state police, they eliminated the state police and created a new one from, from scratch, which was better trained, better equipped, it purportedly had you know, better vetting and controls, and it was just in general it was seen it eventually had was larger than the previous state police force, so it was I think everyone agrees that it's it's a it's a police service with greater capacity than it used to be and the security apparatus in Ciudad Juarez became more capable with the arrival of federal forces when those were sent to Ciudad Juarez. They just had a higher ability to do things so. Security apparatus capacity can influence the level of competition. And I think I think that their influence on the level of competition is ambiguous. So it depends on what the action, what what, what actions they actually take with their greater capacity. So they are more capable of both eliminating groups entirely. So reducing competition, but they could actually also end up fragmenting groups. So splitting up groups if they're able to take out the leadership, but then a bunch of remnants remain and in separate work i think it also depends on who they crack down it it depends on on the existing balance of power between groups so if a more capable security apparatus can carry out strikes it depends whether those strikes hit the group that is relatively stronger or the, the the contending group that's relatively weaker or stronger so In summary, I think that's ambiguous. In terms of the incentives for violence, I think that a more capable security apparatus, holding constant its level of coordination and its stability, reduces the incentives to fight. It reduces the rewards to winning, because even if you win control of a criminal market, you now have this other rival, which is a stronger police, for example. And you also increase the, you make fighting more difficult because it's more likely that you will be noticed if you're fighting and you may be surrounded by police if you start engaging in a shootout. Security apparatus coordination is the ability and willingness to set a joint stance. Exactly what that stance should be, one thing that's neat about this theoretical framework is that I don't have to assume that the authorities are honest or dishonest, whether they're interested in colluding or in implementing the rule of law. The point is that they are aligned with each other and that there is some kind of trust or information sharing. And examples of increases in security apparatus coordination are the Mando Metropolitano in the city of La Laguna, which straddles the uh, two states, Durango and Coahuila, and which thus had not only multiple municipal police forces, but also different state police forces and and even different military uh, zones. So they created Mano in which the various police forces there were coordinated under a single military command. There are various examples or attempts to centralize the state police and the municipal police forces under that state police. Sometimes there is a takeover of uh, the municipal police by a military force. So how does that increase coordination? Well, there is simply only one agency left. So in Tamaulipas, when the Navy took over public security in some places, they were the one agency that was left. There was no more local uh, municipal police. And there are other things that are harder to observe and measure, such as institutionalized communication and meeting protocols that I have found are are often cited in success cases as having led to to that success. And and I'm working on on ways to to observe some of the places where I haven't done deep case studies yet. Now here, I don't think it's ambiguous. I think that a more coordinated security apparatus can reduce the level of competition because whatever policy it holds is more credible and because it doesn't sustain rival groups. And here there is no change from the existing empirical work. So the idea is if there's kind of one cohesive security apparatus, maybe it is bought off or maybe it itself, you know, it colludes with with organized crime, but it does so with one group and it protects that group from rival criminal groups. Or maybe, you know, it's honest and it actually tries to reduce crime and violence and it implements some kind of honest violence-reducing policy, such as saying, we're going to go after whichever group causes more violence or misbehaves the most. And if it's a well-coordinated security apparatus, that is a more credible policy. In terms of the incentives for fighting, it reduces the abilities to fight because there are fewer agencies to be bought off and and law enforcement agencies as, as as i've argued can provide extremely valuable resources can can can, can sustain criminal groups in a territory and it reduces the opportunities to fight for for these same reasons if there's only if there's one cohesive security apparatus agency only one group can buy that off this is a simplification finally security apparatus stability So the permanence of the security apparatus, stance and composition. Going back a little to uh, the international relations literature on trying to explain interstate wars, the rationalist explanations for wars start from the observation that wars aren't rational because they're costly and you should be able to reach a deal that leaves everyone better off than if you actually started destroying things or people. And so wars happen when there are commitment problems, lack of information, uh, uncertainty about the future, shifts and expected shifts in power, etc. And a lot of the explanations for turf wars in Mexico are related to these explanations for war. And the idea is, and, and so the idea is, you no, know, it's not necessarily specific actions that governments have taken, it's just that the general environment is just more uncertain. And so what I'm going to what I'm finding and arguing is that the places where changes in the security apparatus or not changes in the security apparatus, but just its composition were credibly signaled to be stable and to endure in the future, these may have, these are the places where the recoveries may be endured the longest. Some examples, the Forza Civil, I've already talked about it, Mando Metropolitano, same, They were both legislated and written into law. So it wasn't just a pet project of one politician. And for both, there has been strong engagement from business and society. A counterexample, military deployments in general are counterexamples. They are not permanent. They, at some point, they withdraw. And everyone knows that that's going to happen. And, well, political alternation often, almost always, even, even when it's from between politicians of the same party, they often rotate the chiefs of police, the chiefs of investigators, etc. I am unsure about the effect of security apparatus stability, again, independent from the other two attributes, directly on the level of competition in the criminal underworld. In terms of the incentives to fight, however, I think that a more stable security apparatus helps the rationalist instincts to prevent, to avoid war, to kick in. A lot of this has been very abstract, so I'm going to walk you through an example, uh, which is still a little simplified, I acknowledge that. But hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll ground uh, some, of the, some of these concepts that I've been talking about. So these are homicide rates in Ciudad Juarez and in the capital city of Chihuahua from 2008 to 2018. So everyone knows Ciudad Juarez experienced a horrifying turf war the the state in general, it's a horrifying turf war. So what happened? Before 2008, the Juarez Cartel was hegemonic in that city, and it was perceived as very closely aligned with local police and probably also the state police. And here violence was low, quote unquote low, because it was low by Ciudad Juarez standards, though high by other standards. So the circle is Ciudad Juarez, and there is the single criminal group, the Juarez Cartel, the municipal police and the state police in the same color. In 2008, the Sinaloa cartel tried to take over the plaza. So they invaded, as they had done previously. They invaded, and at first they were unsuccessful. But homicide rates did rise. So there was what, in hindsight, was moderate violence. Responding to that violence, the federal government in 2008 and 2009 deployed First the army, then the federal police, and the army again, or the other way around. I don't remember. But they, they deployed federal forces to try to quell the violence. But this actually only produced a stalemate. So El Chapo was losing. He wasn't able to get into the city. But now with the federales coming in and clamping down on, on everyone, or while well, some people think that they were actually favoring the Sinaloa cartel, they were clamping down only on the Juarez cartel. They actually produced a stalemate. And, and so, and violence shot up during these years. In the next two years, there was a realignment of local police to, to say it in a positive way. So this is the infamous mayor who was, um, who kind of forced the local police to at least stop protecting the Juarez cartel in the, at least in the short term. And during this period of realignment, it seems that the municipal and state police stopped supporting the Juarez cartel who knows if they supported the Sinaloa cartel but there was definitely a realignment against so the security apparatus was now more cohesive during the realignment there was still a lot of violence but afterwards this helped beat the Juarez cartel at least initially and the Sinaloa cartel to begin a new kind of hegemonic presence in the city though In the next several years, well, the Juarez cartel had not actually disappeared. And it, or at least its remnants and successors, have been reappearing and there's been growing violence in the last last few years. So here are my hypotheses. Inter-cartel violence falls when a single criminal group becomes hegemonic or when the number of criminal groups rises above a high enough threshold. So that's level of competition and violence. Recoveries occur when the security apparatus becomes more capable, where I do not expect the number of rival groups in territory to be higher or lower. I'm unsure about that. Or recoveries occur when the security apparatus becomes more cohesive, where I do expect to see the number of rival groups fall. Now, that's just a recovery occurring. Whether that lasts for a day or for a decade, I think depends on the structure, capacity, and stance of the security apparatus. Being stable and being perceived as stable. Doesn't necessarily matter how capable it is or how well-coordinated it is, at least that it's stable. In these last few minutes, I'm just going to whip through a preview of some of the empirics. So how I'm evaluating these hypotheses. I'm carrying out three levels of analysis. Medium sample qualitative comparative analysis of the eight states. And there are 21 largest cities. In the Q&A, we can talk about why I chose these states and and why I chose the largest 21 cities. I'm also carrying out, I've been carrying out case studies of four core cases. So this is Tijuana, La Laguna, Monterrey, and Ciudad Juarez, which are some of the largest cities in Mexico and, and which experience different levels of recovery. I'm working on adding two shadow cases to these four case studies. Why? Because... My two examples of successful recovery have been La Laguna and Monterrey, which are non-border cases, whereas the border cases, Tijuana and Tijuana, had failed or very temporary recoveries. So I'm thinking about adding two cases of cities which were also either non-border or border, but that had different outcomes. The next few slides are, were simply illustrating how for my case study of Monterrey, I had been measuring operationalizing and measuring the different variables related to the criminal competition and the security apparatus. And this was just as illustration. So takeaways, amid large scale violence in Mexico, there have been recoveries. They are important. Thousands of lives have been saved compared to what the turf wars had endured longer but also because within years we have observed a collapse and re-emergence of order, state capacity, and social transformation in parts of the country. Durable recovery is not everywhere or obvious. I think it occurs, I hypothesize that occurs when competition ends or when competition remains but the behavior changes of criminal groups and durable recovery can only happen when the security apparatus is stable. So I'll stop there.
0: Thank you for listening to the U.S. Mexico Today podcast. The Center for U.S. Mexican Studies at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy contributes to the ongoing integration process between the U.S. and Mexico by providing a forum of thought leaders to engage in public dialogue and training. The center supports a vibrant community of innovative scholars and practitioners and undertaking cutting-edge research to guide policy decisions. For more information about the center, visit usmax.ucsd.edu and or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Till next time.